If you like the Live Wild podcast and enjoy hunting-related apparel, I've got you covered. I just launched some great t-shirts, hats, and sweatshirts under my own Live Wild brand. You can find them now on my website, remywarren.com. I just want to say thanks again, everyone, for all the support, and I really hope you enjoy these designs as much as I do. Who knows? Maybe you'll head over to my website and find your next lucky hat. I'm Remy Warren, and I've lived my life in the wild. As a professional guide and hunter, I've spent thousands of days perfecting my craft. I want to give that knowledge to you. In this podcast, we relive some of my past adventures as I give you practical hunting tips to make you more successful. Whether you're just getting started or a lifelong hunter, this podcast will bring you along on the hunt and teach you how to live wild. This podcast is brought to you by Mountain Tough and Yeti. A lot of the tactics I talk about here require you to be in top physical shape. So I partnered with Mountain Tough to help get you ready for the mountain. With their science-based hunter-specific training app, you'll get in shape and mentally tough, able to tackle any hunt. Because we really believe this will help you be more successful, as a listener to this podcast, we're giving you six free weeks to get you started. Just use code LIVEWILD. Hey, Live Wild listeners, I just wanted to let you know that I've got some awesome new designs on my Live Wild apparel, including a really cool elk graphic that's on some Yeti Yonder bottles, hats, and t-shirts. We've also got some other new stuff dropping as well. So if you're interested, go check it out my website, remywarren.com. And just thank you guys so much for all the support. Welcome back to Live Wild Podcast, everyone. You know, this week, we're going to dive into a live Q&A that I got to do at the Western Hunting and Conservation Expo in Salt Lake City. I was there for a couple of reasons. One, I was actually had a booth and was exhibiting for my Live Wild brand, but it was really cool to be there the entire time and get to meet so many different people, talk hunting, share hunting stories. A lot of people, you know, had success from tactics from this podcast. And so that was just really inspiring to me. It was also really fun to just be there and, and actually we were right next to Wilderness Athlete, a company that I work with supports this podcast. So, you know, in between talking to people, I just go over, grab some energy and focus, hydrate and recover, depending on what part of the day, all right? I tried to pace this, like hydrate and recover in the morning, energy and focus midday. And then by the end of the day, I was probably doing like the Superman. So they had samples of everything. It was like hydrate and recover energy focus in the middle was combination they call it superman mixing the two hydrate and energy and focus there's a lot of combination mixtures that i had never tried before what was the best it was it turns out green but it was the blue raspberry and orange together and one of my buddies chris had been telling me that that's the best mixture i was like i don't know about that but it ended up being really good so I don't know if you, if you get a chance to try it. I did notice too, like if you missed the show and you want to try it, you hear me talk about the wilderness athlete stuff on their website. I see in the, I found it in bundles. They've got a flavor sampler packet, which has all 13 flavors. So if you want to get crazy, make your own mixture or just try their various flavors, you know, over the course of the, the show, we got, you know, pretty much everybody got to sample everything. And it's funny, everybody likes something different. So what I like might not be what you like, but I just noticed that they had that. So that's that's an option for you guys. And as always, you can use code LIVEWILD, get a discount on some wilderness athlete stuff. Also, I have my Live Wild package bundles on there, which uh, has even a, a larger discount. So if you're interested in that, you guys can check that out on their website. But 
we're going to jump into these Q&As. And the thing I really like about doing these question answers, whether it's call-in or live in person at a convention like this, is really you guys drive the topics. And I feel like there's a lot of questions that get asked that other people probably have similar thoughts on or, or had similar encounters, right? Because the things that you might run into, let's say on an elk hunt, you go, okay, I was, I was doing this, I was chasing the elk, they were bugling, everything was right, and then a couple of days later, the elk shut down. What do I do? Or, oh man, I, I was in a place and, you know, it just, I couldn't find the elk. What was I doing wrong? Or just whatever it, the situation is. Oh, I was stalking in and it just kept blowing it within this range. Just a lot of similar kind of stories, which helps guide the discussion on the tips and tactics. So I think there's a lot of awesome questions in this one and a lot of things that we can all learn from this Q&A. So we're going to jump into live at the Western Hunt Expo. Let's start it off with our first question. Who's got a question? How do you uh, deal with the mental fatigue after a long hunt? And you, do you reset somehow? What are some tactics that you use to, you know, you're, you're not seeing that buck, he's moved off. What do you, what do you, uh, you know, you're getting mentally exhausted. Yeah, that's one of the things that I like to talk about a lot is that mental game of it because most of the hunts is a guide that you see people fail on. It's because they failed up here before their body ever gave out. There's a lot of tricks to it. You know, it, I think people think they can go on it and they're like, oh, I can, I can do it. And they don't really plan for that like mental aspect of it. Like what happens, especially when you're alone and there's nobody to lift you up. Sometimes you're on a hunt and your buddy can be like, come on, man, it's going to be good. You got that one hype man. And he's like, all right, my brother's that, you know, he's like always the optimist. And naturally I'm probably more of a pessimist, but in some ways you kind of have to trick yourself, right? So hunt's not going right. But I, I kind of trick myself every day with this mindset of this could like this could be the day when i go into a canyon like i approach that canyon like i know there's a 200 inch buck there so think about it like this one way that i like to describe it is if if i was hunting with you and i had done six months of scouting and we went into this canyon and i told you there is a 230 inch buck in this canyon i've seen him 24 times we just got to find him like it's thick it's hard how are you going to sit there and look for that buck, right? You're going to be glued to that glassing point. You're going to be glassing back and forth. You're going to be drinking water through a straw. You're probably going to wet your pants. <laughs> like just, you're just going to be hunting so hard for that deer because you know that deer is there, right? The way that you approach going over the ridge, you're like, there's a 200 inch buck in this canyon. I can't blow him out, right? But the same thing on any hunt, you don't know what's necessarily there, but the way that you're hunting when you know oh, this animal's there, is completely different than if I said, hey, look in this canyon. I've never seen a deer here in my entire life, and actually all the deer dead in this unit. Unfortunately, there's just no deer left. Like, how are you going to look? You're going to, like, sit there all day and, and pick it apart and, and really do that, or are you just going to kind of, like, be on your phone? You're going to eat a bunch of snacks. You're going to probably take 15 naps, right? Because you're going to hunt it two different ways because of what's in your mind. The canyon didn't change. It was just what you, you knew about it. So when I go into a canyon or I go on a hard hunt, I have to tell myself, like, this is the, like, when I walk into a new canyon or I climb up that ridge, I tell myself, like, I'm going to kill the best buck of my life on this trip. 
doesn't matter if it's an area that doesn't even have those. Like I am, I am hunting and looking in my mind, like I'm going to kill the best buck of my life. And because of it, through the duration of the hunt, I'm hunting like I'm going to do that. And so I have that expectancy and I have that drive to continue to do it. I didn't see it this time. Well, tomorrow that's going to be the day. Tomorrow's the day that I'm going to do it. And it allows me to, it's almost like a self-fulfilling prophecy because when you think you're like, this sucks. I didn't see any deer here. And this unit sucks. Like I, we all do it. Oh man, this, oh, I, I blew it. Yes. That was my one chance. I blew it. Right. And you just start to, you go down that, you, you drop down the decline and you actually hunt in a way that makes that true. You don't hunt like you would when you had that other expectation. And so when you hunt with that expectation, when things get bad, you just got to keep, you know, tricking yourself in a way of hunting because what happens is you end up hunting harder and you end up finding more and making it a better outcome. And that's too, sometimes why it gets down to the last day and you're successful in the last day because you hunt like it's the last day. It's your last chance. You're going, you're hiking further. You're going harder. You're up earlier. You're like, this is the last day you see a buck and he's going over the ridge and you're grunting and stopping and getting down. And you've got a round jacked in when the day before you're kind of lazy fair about it or whatever. You're just, you're in that mode to kill. And so, you know, it's all, nothing's really changed. It's just the mindset that you had those different times. Hope that helps. Next question, and feel free to give me your name. You don't have to give your first and last name, but uh, name and where you're from, if you don't mind. Um, Gavin Swanson from Nebraska. I got my eight-week-old son here, and I was just wondering what your thoughts are on getting kids involved. And I know you got kids, so I was just curious about that. Yeah, I got a, a fairly young family. My daughter's two and a half years old. My son's one years old. And, um, I mean, my daughter started going on trips with us when she was about <laughs> that old, right, like eight weeks or whatever. I, I think, like, for us, it was just bringing – her around and my son around and just like, it's just part of our life. It's our lifestyle. And I, you know, we did a hunt and we actually filmed it and we've done a lot more since then that we haven't filmed. Like the filming kind of always adds a, a, so you've already got a toddler on your back and then you've got this and that and the other thing. And now we're going to film it and just adds to the, to the struggle of it, but uh, bringing them along, involving them in it. And then I, I think part of it too, one thing that I'm kind of worried about is, you know, pushing them away in a way where it's, we, we don't necessarily make it a thing that we have to do. Like I don't force my daughter, like now when I leave, she thinks every time I'm going hunting, she's like the hunting dog that I'm not taking hunting. Daddy, can we go hunting? I go hunting with you, daddy. Let's go hunting, daddy. Let's go. She wants to go sheep hunting. That's all she talks about is sheep hunting. Cause, <laughs> cause apparently I'm on a lot of sheep hunts and she thinks that that's what daddy does for work. He just goes sheep hunting. So um, she wants to go to work and go sheep hunting with daddy, but you know, just bringing them along and, and making it a part of the thing. I mean, another thing too, I think is important is just like the wild game and, and the meals and the other things. Her her first meal was elk. My son's first meal was elk. Solid food was elk. And when we're eating, I, we went to a restaurant. She ordered steak. And she's like, Daddy, is this deer or elk? I was like, well, it's beef. But I was like, it's beef. She's like, I like elk. Okay, you know? She's only two and a half years old. So just making it a part of our life is the way that I'm doing it. You know, time will tell whether that continues on. But I think, like, I see in her the way that I was when I was her age, just all about it. And so I think, like... You know, some people like it, some people don't, but the best thing we can do is like, this is what we do as a family and not be afraid to take them out there. You know, I'm definitely going to take the back burner on a lot of hunts in the future. And, you know, I would say like I had a successful season this year, but some of my best hunts and the majority of my time for my personal hunting and other stuff was actually taking my wife and kids out, stuff that nobody else will ever see. But 
it was just, you know, us. And I had, I've got a picture on my phone is one, probably one of the best days hunting the season where it's like, I had both kids. I had one on the front, one on the back and backpacks. My wife's stalking a cow elk. I've got, I brought like a quilt and a blanket, put it out. I had toys. They're sitting in the backpacks, hanging out, laughing. I got the spotting scope set up with a mag view and the camera. I hit record because I'm like just watching the elk. I'm watching the kids, you know, and then a little bit later, my wife calls like, I, I don't know if I got him. Did I hit him? And I'm like, I didn't even know you shot. Okay. Like, let me scroll back through the page. No, I think you missed. Okay. <laughs> Let's go find your arrow. Okay. Nope. I missed. Okay. But it was just like a lot of fun and just a completely different way of, of hunting. And, you know, we weren't going way back into the back country, but we were just getting out. And that, I think that's important. Next question. Oh yeah. Right up front here. And then we'll go to the back. Charles from Colorado. Huge fan. As is everybody here. Yeah, appreciate um, it. Yeah, of course. What knowledge would you give someone who is uh, attempting to go out of the country on a hunt, you know, to New Zealand? What are some do's and maybe don'ts that you have? Yeah, I mean, it doesn't matter where you go out of the country. It's There's a couple things that, I mean, there's the logistics of travel, and, and it's really any hunt that you're traveling with. A few of the things that I like to think of is, I think a lot of people go on a hunt somewhere else and they plan for the hunt, but they don't plan how to get home. That's like the first thing I think about once I figure out where I'm going is how I'm getting back. Not like getting back safely, but just like bringing what you got back. There's a lot of logistics in that. So I always kind of pack in a way that like, okay, if, I, uh, if I'm successful, how am I going to bring back what I'm, I'm going to get? And so it's like I plan, you know, I, I kind of have like a certain packing strategy of I've got like a, a Yeti backpack hopper and then I've got a Yeti panga bag and I use those like I think it makes a big difference what I take over there because I can use that as like a waterproof storage that's not going to leak blood and hide and whatever smell onto the plane I, I pack hose for antler tips and, and tape I pack cellophane to, to wrap up and, and pack things nice and package it back so I can and then I plan on where I'm staying afterwards so I can freeze something like a cape or meat or whatever I mean I plan all those things and then plan a little bit of time before and after for things that might go wrong in travel another thing is like you know just the logistics of it uh, traveling with a gun can be inconvenient I've traveled a lot of places and, and being very familiar with somewhere else's laws in that way the one thing you don't want to do is violate a firearms law in another country because, you know, just because you're going somewhere else, uh, especially internationally, you learn really fast that their rules are not your rules. And, you know, as Americans, we're, we love our guns and we're very proud of it. And I'm the same way, like, you know, and you kind of expect other places to just be like that and they aren't, you know, so you got to be very careful with understanding those rules and how to travel with firearms and other things, obviously getting the right permits and all that stuff. Because I know people that have, had messed up permits and had really hard times in places that aren't so great, you know, but New Zealand's pretty fine with that. But, you know, just the logistic portion of it and, you know, doing a lot of research and spending the time anytime you travel anywhere, I think that's a good thing to do is just like figure out the logistics, how to get there and how to get home. And, and we'll queue up a next question too, if who wants to ask the one after this. Okay, right here. That's well, Jim. Uh, I, first of all, I love your podcast listen to it all the time, learned a terrific amount, but I'm a late onset hunter. I'm 70 years old and I've got to shorten the learning curve, which your podcast helps me do. However, I'm wondering about how picky to get on some of the equipment choices and does it make that much difference? For example, I just listened to your 
podcast on the, on uh, bullets and and uh, calibers and things like that. Hey, I've got a 30 out six. I'm probably not. I'm not a huge gun collector. I'm not going to go get four other rifles. It's going to be the 30 out six probably. And as far as arrows go, how much do I should I pay attention to all the technical stuff? Compared to, for example, your podcast where you talked about shoot from different positions and angles and, and those kinds of things and get proficient at a variety of, of uh, distances. I'm, I'm shooting a prime bow with some blood sport arrows that, are, that I just got on camel fire and just wondering about how I balance all that because you only have so much time when you're 70. Yeah, for sure. No, I mean, there, there's a lot of things. I mean good gear has its place right and then but whatever rifle you have doesn't matter if you can't find something to shoot at (laughs) and it it also doesn't matter if you can't get into where you need to go or you you can't figure out how to get the animal within to position so there's certain things that you know it's a lot about understanding the animals and, and being able to find the animals but there are a lot of pieces of equipment that aid in that right so you can kind of pick and choose you can you could be successful hunting with pretty much anything. You could sharpen a rock, put it on a stick, have a primitive bow and, and kill something and be successful, right? And so like I, I put a lot of emphasis on the tactics and the tips and other things, but I personally like gear because I, I mean, for me, I live in the mountains and so there's certain pieces of gear that just make it more comfortable, more easier to obtain whatever your goal is. It depends what your goal is, right? So it's like, hey, do I need a new rifle? What, what do you like to do when you're hunting? Well, I'm hunting, I'm going on my first elk hunt. What rifle do you have? 243. I suggest you get a different rifle, you know, just for the ethicalness of it and whatever. Um, but, you know, maybe you're like, hey, I've got a 30 out six. It's older. And I go, okay, uh, what's the country you're hunting in? Oh, it's, it's pretty open country. It's a hard unit to find an elk. I say, well, what emphasis are you going to put on success? And you go, well, I really want to bring home an elk. And I go, okay, well, you're probably going to have further shots when you're probably gonna get one opportunity at best. And you're, I mean, you're like, how far are you gonna shoot? Oh, I'm gonna shoot 250 yards. Well, if you could bump that out to 400 yards, your odds of success are, I would say, substantially increased in certain areas, right? Because you can get across the canyon, you're gonna have less opportunity to spook them. You get that one opportunity, you know, you've got, you're shooting a group like this or a group like this. So there are pieces of gear that make a difference in the hunt and you don't need them all at once, but you know, there are some things you go, okay, I'm at this level. And then as you get and you're like, well, what else do I want to do? Where do I want to go with this? What are my goals? And things change, right? Like I choose different weapons all the time just to hunt with, like I'll take a traditional muzzleloader on a hunt. I know that I got to get within bow range and, and half the time, like when I pull the trigger on that percussion lock muzzleloader, it's not going to go off in cold weather. Okay, well, I, I chose that, and that was fun, and that was a style of hunting that I wanted to do, and it's gear that's been around forever, or a traditional bow, or, you know, maybe this hunt I particularly want a compound bow and, and arrows that, you know, I want my groups to be more proficient. So when I get that one shot, if a deer ducks a little bit, it there is going where I aimed, and so the margin of error is a little bit smaller, so therefore the margin of success is a little bit higher. So good gear plays a difference in some aspects and going on a big long backcountry hunt and you're uncomfortable and wet and most people are like this is too hard for me i'm gonna leave because my tent's leaking some people will be like i can stick it out whatever it just depends on your toughness as well right so 
it's just it's a personal thing where you match it and, and where you decide to upgrade and where whatever because it all plays a role like there is some you know we walk around out here there's some incredible gear and when i started hunting i was hunting in essentially like uh, old fatigues from an army surplus store and pack that didn't have a waist belt it was like a jan sport backpack <laughs> and it was very uncomfortable and the places we went with that stuff was a, like looking back yeah it was it was pretty tough you had to be tough like we wore like just boots were essentially uninsulated cowboy boots and whatever whatever we had we wore right and we were successful but as gear got better we were able to do more things and be more comfortable doing it so i think that there's a place for it all sure. yeah i got a follow-up remy yeah so uh, i get all that if if i'm taking my off-the-shelf bow and off-the-shelf arrows with a fixed blade and i get proficient within you know, a uh, six to eight inch area from 50 yards, let's say. How much difference does it make if I worry about the FOC and heavier versus lighter and all those kinds of things? That's kind of where my, my question was. Oh, am, yeah. am I going to bring those groups down to, you know, only four inches and, and therefore, uh, obviously, it's going to have some positive impact, but I've got a trade-off the cost of buying all that stuff and and uh, testing it all out and is is there some way to shortcut that process and in the at the end of the day will it make enough of a difference to be worth the time and money investment to you know i mean honestly it's just up to each individual yeah i mean like there's arrows that i've had that were high performance arrows from one company you know and like pretty good straightness and i went up a level in my you know, shooting or whatever. When I switched from some arrows to another arrow the first time, I noticed like I was shooting maybe 70 or 80 yards in like a four inch group and then I, or three, whatever it was, and then different arrows and it was like, wow, my group's tightened up. Okay. Yeah, I mean, there, there's a reason that tournament archers shoot certain arrows because it, it makes a difference. I've got to shoot a lot of different arrows and what happens is mostly the inconsistency in the batch of arrows. So like lower grade arrows, I used to just buy a bunch of arrows for the season, like Carbon Express arrows or whatever. That's what I used to shoot. And I would get four dozen of them be before the beginning of the season. I would shoot and shoot and notice this one was off and this one was off. And I'd go through and essentially have half of them at the end of the thing because I would get flyers that were like not acceptable for me personally. So yeah, there's certain things where there's tighter tolerances and you pay more for it. Yeah, but whether it's for what you're doing, I don't know. You know, so it's just, that's up to the individual. But yeah, there are certain things it doesn't even make sense to do. It's like, well, as long as it can kill, you can kill, like I can go kill something with my self bow with an arrow that I've made myself and a napped broadhead. And that's the hunt that I'm going to do. And I'm going to hunt for that. So it just depends on what you want to do. I hope that answers the question, but like there's, there are like a, the difference between a, a gun that shoots sub MOA and a gun that shoots six inch groups at a hundred yards. I mean, we have a lot of guys show up to our hunting camps that, with guns that shoot six inch groups at a hundred yards and we just give them our guns because it makes a big difference. I mean, I've seen it over the years, it like makes a difference in success or wounding an animal. And so we're like, hey, we can just cut down that margin of error by using our equipment. So up here in the middle front. Uh, Casey from South Dakota, uh, somebody that has hunted across the globe and country for a long period of time, could you talk a little bit about how that's kind of colored your perspective on the idea of the conservation of wildlife and wild places? Yeah, definitely. You know, 
here in the U.S., I would say our conservation is different than other places, right? Everybody's got their own model of conservation. American model of conservation is, you know, we're managing the populations in a certain way. We use hunting as a tool for population management, whether it's overpopulation, underpopulation, uh, kind of balancing the whole thing. And when I talk to somebody that doesn't understand hunting, like they go, oh, well, nature can, let's just sort of like release wolves and it'll be fine. Okay, what, whatever your thought is. I mean, where was there a time that you can point to in North American history where human hunters were not also an apex predator on the landscape? There isn't one, right? We've always managed populations as humans, essentially. Like, we followed the animals here and we've been hunting them ever since. And aside from that, like, the landscape's completely different now than it was. Uh, you talk about, like, putting it back to what it was, and we're going to have to get rid of all your feral cats, all your feral horses, all the feral and invasive species of plants. Um, we're going to have to get rid of fences and other things. We're going to have to get rid of your home. We're going to have to get rid of roads and other things because we are never, it's never going to be what it was. And you can't just go like, well, they, it used to be like this, and now we're going to manage it. We just want it to go back to the way it was. It's impossible. It's an impossible ask, right? So we manage it based on the way that is unimpossible, and that's the best way that we know how to do it. And that's what we do right now. But you go other places too, and right, it's a, it's a different scenario. And when I think about places I've been in, like places that I used to work in Africa, and it's like, okay, what they need is completely different than what we need here, right? I mean, there's a lot of people in places that I've been where they're just you aren't really concerned about wildlife conservation when you aren't sure where your kids are going to get fed from, right? So the fact that like I, they can go out and shoot a rhino and their kids are going to survive or maybe go to school, I mean, like if it's me, I would shoot the rhino because I love my kids and that's how it's going to be because we can't understand it the way that we do things here, right? But if somebody can come in and use hunting as a tool to provide what they need for their families and also conserve wildlife, then that's a completely different model than we have here. And then you look at New Zealand where the majority of the game species are invasive species and they're actually harming the native landscape. And they go, well, now hunting can be the conservation tool to shoot as many as possible. So like the environmentalists in New Zealand want the animals eradicated from helicopters and poisoned. Like, could you imagine if like environmentalist groups here were like, poison the elk, right? <laughs> Makes no sense. But as hunters, we're like, no, well, there's value in those animals. Like we can, we can use that money for other things. Hunters would be willing to do the population management as opposed to the, the state or tax dollars going to spending millions of dollars trying to eradicate a species that has a value. So everywhere you go, conservation is completely different, yet hunters provide a solution. And the solution might be different for different reasons, but the value of hunting and hunters, I think, is pretty universal with just different situations in different places. Yeah, right there, and then we'll come here and here. Um, Aaron from New Mexico. Uh, I was just gonna have you maybe, I know you've hunted the Gila before. So like early season and the Gila can get really hot um, and just go over midday tactics when elk aren't vocal whether it's hot or just because it's early in the season? Yeah, I mean, one thing I was actually talking, I was doing a Go Hunt podcast this morning and we are talking about different elk strategies and tactics. And one that I have used a lot guiding but haven't personally shot a bull. We were talking about like sitting water and killing an elk on water. I have personally not shot one on water, but I've guided a lot of, I've been assisting in people shooting elk on water a lot in my life. And so switching up the tactics is a great way to do it. Early season, especially in warm or hot areas, you know, bulls will push cows to water, uh, even if they aren't 
grouped up with cows if it's like the rut really hasn't peaked yet. Water can be a huge factor in drawing elk to that specific location. And even in places like Montana, Idaho, Wyoming, Utah even, it's like wallows and water holes can be used as a pinpoint to essentially figure out where the elk are going to be. And so, you know, sitting water can be a really good tactic in those areas early season. And it is a, it's a tactic that I've used guiding a lot, actually in other places in New Mexico, not specifically the Gila, but where it's like, okay, we're using a combination of wallow and waterhole tactics. But you, the way that I hunt a wallow is different than the way that I hunt a waterhole. Hunting a waterhole is essentially, they're going in there primarily to drink. And then hunting a wallow is there, a bull is going in there primarily to put his perfume on. He's going in there to roll around. They might drink, but they're going to scent up. And that's generally as the rut picks up, the activity of a wallow increases. But one set of water might be both a water hole and a wallow, and it might transition into more rolling around and more drinking earlier. I've run a lot of trail cams just for the fun of it and just to understand what elk and deer do and found out like bears utilize them a lot as well. But in those times where it's like you go in with a game plan, right? Like like the Mike Tyson quote, everybody's got a plan until they get punched in the face. It's like you go in your hunt, you're like, I am going to dog that bull. I'm going to bugle. This is going to be awesome. I'm going to cow call and I've got this strategy and you rip a hundred bugles and you hear zero back. You know, okay, our plan's not going to work. What are we going to do? We're going to pivot and we're going to pick a different tactic. Well, what are some other tactics that can work in this area? Hey, it's hot. Okay, I can glass mornings and evenings. So it's like maybe they're feeding and then they're pushing into bed really quick. Like by the time the sun comes up, they're already pushing to beds. Okay, where are they pushing from feeding to bedding and where's some water that might be there? Or maybe transitioning and saying like, okay, I'm going to try to do an ambush tactic on on feeding areas from bedding areas or I'm going to still hunt bedding areas. Um, just switching up the tactics and, and adjusting based on that is a really good way to do it when it's hot. And if it's hot and nothing else is going on, I like to glass shade if I can find it. I've picked up a lot of deer and elk and like I, I've talked about this before, but I'm a big proponent of killing things in the middle of the day. I, I've killed probably a vast majority of animals between the hours of 11 and 3 p.m. And that's the days that like people are back in their camp napping and that's when I'm shooting things because there's tactics that you can exploit in the middle of the day. It's your best opportunity to stock in on something because the thermals are steady and generally driving up. And it's good because it narrows down where the animals are gonna be. They're gonna be in shade and or potentially going to water. So you can kind of base your tactics off of that. Uh, hi, I'm Sloan from Evergreen, Colorado. So I've been on the keto diet for four years now, and I think the biggest challenge is getting enough calories when we're backpack archery hunting. Um, so I wanted to know what's your biggest challenge with nutrition or with food in the backcountry? Yeah, that's a really good question. You know, there's a lot of things. Well, I mean, specifically for, you know, like when I go on a backcountry hunt, it's just like, everything's, I'm just all about calories. Like I will eat things that I would never eat other times of the year, unfortunately. Like, and it's like, whatever I will eat, I will bring. So if it's like, I, I will eat Snickers bars, I will just pound those. I know like not all calories are created equal, but I think that like, I try to find like weight to calorie ratio is whatever I can pack that has that. I'll, I'll bring some added like fats and then I'll add them into meals. So it'll be things like coconut oil packs. Like just get those like online. I'll bring like packets of mayo that I'll put in with like a, a bagel sandwich or something like that. And just like 
good calorie dense food. I don't mind carrying extra food either. Your pack's always like pretty heavy going in and it's more the space than the weight for me. But like I used to just like really skimp on the food and the amount that I could bring in. And then I started just being like, screw it. I'm just going to eat good. And it gave me more energy throughout a course of a long hunt. Sometimes it's a lot heavier, but I bring things that are, you know, like salami and other things as well. Things with like high fat content. Now I will say like, if you are, uh, you know, people have different diets, like a keto type diet, you know, metabolic flexibility is really important. So essentially what it is, is allowing your body to translate. Uh, I mean, I'll probably butcher this, but like, you know, what your body already has into creating that energy. And a lot of that can come through like fasting at certain times. So like throughout the season, like there's a lot of times throughout pre-season that I like, I won't eat till a certain time of day. I did that for a very long time. Like I'd probably just start eating at like 3 p.m. I'm not necessarily saying that I have a degree in this, but I've talked to a lot of people that are smarter than me about it. And I just did that because I felt good about that. But what it did was I could kind of like live in ketosis. But when I was on a backcountry hunt, boom, I can hit some sugars and carbs. And it was just like super fuel, you know? So it was like, okay, well, your body is, is working in that state where you're still able to use what you have, but then you can add in other things on the hunt. And it just gives you like that extra boost of energy. Something to think about. Hi, it's uh, Tyrell from Evergreen also. Um, my question to you is regarding when you, uh, I'm one of the, I guess, people that are blessed. I've been approached by people that are non-hunters and they're kind of having the interest of getting into the hunting and conservation. Um, one challenge is though, is like, you know, you have your spots and you have your places you go, you see wildlife, things like that. How do you personally handle taking people in? Because obviously it's one of those, if we're already on them, I kind of want to just take them all in there, but we have very limited space and where we run into a lot of this wildlife. So, you know, you don't want to have 30 guys in there in the next five years because everybody's coming along. So kind of what's, how do you approach it? And, you know, for us to grow in our numbers and possibly get more to help us in our fight. Yeah, no, that's, I mean, that's a great question. I, I do take a lot of new hunters and some of them are friends or family, you know, it might be the friend of a friend or a family member or whatever. And a lot of the things that I do, like, you know, we've all got our spots and sometimes I, I learned very young that sometimes just people don't respect spots like I do. Like my best friend, uh, like he's taken me to some places duck hunting and to this day like if he took me there 25 years ago i still call him big hey remember that spot you showed me like uh, 17 years ago you mind if i head there this like i'm very respectful of spots and i know but i've also taken people like chucker hunting and then a week later they're there with other people and you're like dude come on man right so you know one of the things that i kind of started doing a long time ago was if somebody wanted to go somewhere new i'd be like i would just go find a new spot and because of that, I learned a lot of places. Like there's a lot of areas that I know now and I know everywhere in it. And even guiding, right? I had my spots and then I, as a, I started as a guide and I would go to my spots and I'd be very successful. And then I started becoming the outfitter and then I'd have other guides and I need to direct them to spots. So I'd give them my good spots and they would keep going to those spots and I had nowhere to hunt. So I would find a new spot and then that spot would be really good. And I would just continually find new spots. And because of it, it made me a better hunter and made me know areas a lot better. Um, you know, it's like, yeah, it's nice to go and get into animals right away, but you might find that like, if you venture out, you know, you, you actually end up with more places that are just like that other place. And it allows you to kind of know the area better and have more places to go. 
as new hunters, like one thing that I always tell people that are trying to get into it is like, if you approach a hunter and be like, hey, I'm really wanting to get into this here, I found this place that might be really cool. Would you mind going there with me? So that's like a thing that I've told new hunters and, and it's gone over really well from the people that I know have done it. It's like, like, you don't even know what you're doing, but you're just directing someone to be like, come out with me. You know, and maybe it's like, okay, next time, oh, okay, we didn't see anything, whatever. But like a lot of them are just trying to get like just that initial get out there. And sometimes all it takes is just getting out there. I mean, whether you're successful or not is one thing, but sometimes you do end up finding success in that. So that's something that I just suggest to new hunters to kind of when they're approaching someone that might not be willing to take them out to a certain place, find somewhere that they can take you and do it that way. I'm Ian from Colorado as well. Sounds like there's a lot of us here. Yeah. Um, what advice would you have for somebody just getting started in guiding big game? Yeah, I mean, I kind of suggest it in three ways. So there's like different kinds of guiding. There's backcountry camp guiding, whether hiking or horses. There's private land guiding, and then there's like public land, maybe day use type guiding or hunting. And so on day use public land, you really have to know the area in order to be successful there. So I would suggest if you know an area, then approach people in that area and be like, I know this area because guide outfitters are always looking for somebody that knows their area. Private land, nobody knows their area. So it's really important that the guide knows that animal. So it's just like any job, you have to have a resume. You know, you can't just be like, hey, I want to start guiding. It's like, cool, what do you want to guide elk? And like, cool. And you're like, I've never hunted elk. Well, that's not going to work, right? Like, so you'd be like, I want, I want to program rockets. And they're like, cool, what do you do? And you're like, I've never, I don't know anything about engineering. So you kind of have to have that background in it. But if you go like, okay, oh, you know, I'm, I really know elk. Like I'm a really good elk caller. I'm very successful hunting multiple places of elk. I just understand elk behavior really well. Then you can kind of go into that, you know, there's options. There's, it just increases the places that you could go. So and when I started guiding, I, I started in an area that I knew really well in Montana and was very successful in hunting and I could take people and whatever. I also knew elk really well. And so therefore I was able to secure jobs and some private land stuff in New Mexico. And then I also, you know, was able to do that other places too, where it's like, okay, you know, you, you ride into a wilderness camp most people don't really know those areas, but you just know elk and you know how to hunt that area because it's a very specific area that you can hunt. So it doesn't really matter if you know the area, you'll learn it, uh, but you know the animals in it. And so understanding those two things is good and then approaching outfitters with like that knowledge and that type of resume. And then the third one is for people that are like, hey man, I don't really know, I'm not you know, very versed in this. I don't know the area that well. I don't know animals. Well, you know, there's horse camps and other things like wrangling and packing that you really just have to either know horses. And, and the thing, nice thing about knowing horses is that can be taught. You know, people would always ask like, should I go to guide school? I want to get into guiding. And I'm like, guide school will not teach you how to hunt or be a guide. It'll teach you how to deal with horses. So it's like, but that can get you in and then you can learn the area and you can learn elk hunting by packing and doing other things. Same within Alaska where you got to be a packer for a couple of years before you start guiding. So it's like, hey man, you maybe you've never hunted sheep or moose. It doesn't matter if you're in shape and you can carry 150 plus pound pack for miles and days on end you're hired, right? So just kind of matching where you're at with the kind of jobs and then you kind of gain the experience along the way. I know we were talking earlier, but I'm Frank from Stephenville, Texas. So something that, that I was wondering when I was young, I mean, I'm 30 now, but when I was younger, 
I didn't have any issues going up into high elevation, you know, going from Texas to Uray, Colorado. I'd be hiking at 12,000 feet and wouldn't feel, I mean, I feel a little bit lightheaded, but it never really bothered me until I started having uh, heavy anxiety and, and panic attacks and stuff like that. And I was never the same after that. I experienced uh, elevation sickness for the first time in 2022 elk hunting. Uh, I was at 12,600 feet. Um, is do you have any recommendations um, if you've ever been at that elevation or higher to to maybe get acclimated? Is, is there is there anything additional you can do besides getting there early and and you know working your way up to that elevation, or is that really the only way? You know, I mean realistically like getting acclimated to elevation just a couple of days isn't going to do it in in the reality of things it takes a long time for your blood cell count to match uh for elevation right there are a few things like you know you see those like masks people used to run in like restrict your breathing and then it just became you know i i had tried that at one point and didn't really feel like that worked there are a few things that i like tricks that i have done for like really high elevation like I live at high elevation, so uh, for me, it's not so bad when I, but even you do notice the effects as you go up in elevation when you're going up like over 13,000 feet or something, like when I was in, um, you know, hunting Marco Polo sheep, it was very high elevation. And so there's that pulmonary edema risk and other things. One thing that I started doing for any elevation hunt above where I was really used to, because I just noticed like the effects slow me down, maybe not to the altitude sickness, but just, dude, I'm, I live at five or 6,000 feet and I go on a hunt at nine to 10,000 feet and you just feel like that, like as soon as I hit 8,500 feet, I like start to feel real sluggish and tired and just like out of it. So I started using um, the wilderness athlete altitude advantage and you just take it like a few weeks before. It's almost like a, I don't know, I, I don't know the science behind it, but it essentially just opens up your blood and it helps. Like, I mean, I've noticed it physically helping. So I've taken it on all my really high altitude hunts or ones where I'm just preparing for that. And then like, if I'm going on a, a super high elevation hunt, I actually get a prescription for Diamox, which is like, it's prescribed for like climbing Everest or whatever. Um, and it helps with altitude sickness you know so it's not like it never hurts to have that in your kit i keep it in my kit especially like guiding if somebody gets altitude sickness is like okay here, here you know i'm not prescribing well, i would i mean never take that scrub that out of the thing i don't give out drugs to people prescription drugs to people but uh, <laughs> um yeah <laughs> yeah so um you know i do have like a standing prescription for diamox though and uh like for high altitude hunts for myself and myself only <laughs> <laughs> No, if someone is going through like pulmonary edema, I would probably definitely uh, uh, like help them live with it. <laughs> yeah, uh, we'll go one one more question or a couple. We got a couple more. Hey, Remy, uh, Carson from Idaho. Later this year, I'm going on an archery antelope hunt, and I just want to know your opinions of any tips, or would you put more emphasis on sitting a blind at a watering hole, or? spot and stock using decoys like what would your preferred method be yeah our where uh, i guess it depends on where you're going to be pronghorn hunting because not everywhere is conducive to sitting water i prefer to sit water for pronghorn when i'm trying to target a certain size of animal or target a specific animal and it's got to be country where that works sitting water is like pretty lethal for pronghorns but it's also very dependent on 
what else is around and weather at the time. Like we've done a lot of scouting and found like the buck we're going to get and it rains the entire week before. It's not sitting water is not going to happen. Spot and stock hunting uh, for like if I'm not particular about like if I draw a limited entry pronghorn hunt and it can do some scouting, I'm probably going to sit water because I'm going to figure out where they're at, find a buck that I want to target figure out where he's drinking and then wait for him there because it's my best opportunity for that animal. All the big pronghorn that I've shot have been sitting water. But the way that I mostly hunt pronghorn is spot and stock because it's the most fun. And I generally on those hunts don't really care the size that I'm, I'm just ripping around with the bow, trying to take a pronghorn, having a fun, blowing some stocks, getting on the next stock, numbers game, just continuing to stock till I shoot one. And so it just depends on the hunt. And there's areas that I hunt in like Montana and Idaho where, I mean, you might sit water, but they've got 900 options. They're, they've got a stream that's six miles long and they're just gonna drink wherever they want that day. And they do have, I'd have noticed that there are certain places where they might have like a little isolated pocket of water that they like because they've got a good view and they pre- prefer it. And I've sat those even when there's other water around and done all right as well. So, But sitting water is pretty, pretty lethal if you get the opportunity to do it. Right conditions. Hi, Remy. Uh, Stefan from North Idaho. Um, question for you. What are your thoughts on long-range rifle hunting and the ethics surrounding it right now, currently, in the modern hunting world? And then what's your preferred, like, ethical long shot on big-game animals, mule deer, black bear, elk, etc.? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean... You know, like, I think when it kind of started, I was pretty enamored with it and I got everything and I started shooting far. And as a guide, I'd be like, I liked the opportunity to dial my scope for someone and know, like, if they pulled the trigger and they missed, it was because they were holding it in the wrong spot. It wasn't because, you know, they were aiming wrong. Um, So I was like, "Eh, we've had a lot of success with lethal kills by being able to adjust for the exact yardage. Now, obviously people take that and go like, oh, I'm shooting an elk at 1200 yards. For me, I like to personally get as close as possible. When I'm rifle hunting, I try to get within 300 yards. The furthest shot that I would like feel comfortable taking is mostly around that 550 range, even though I shoot my gun like all the time out to 900,000 yards. Because just for the hunting aspect, like it stops becoming, and this is my personal opinion, whatever, you know, I think everybody's got their own ethics, right? But if it makes like hunting look bad, then that's also bad. You know, it's, everything's situational, you know, wind, time of day, size of animal, caliber of rifle, proficiency with that rifle, all those things like, you know, saying what the effective range is right now might be completely different in five minutes. But, you know, I I do think that, like, for me, I try to, I mean, actually a lot of stuff with my rifle, I try to get within 200 yards because I just like the hunting. Like, the whole point of hunting in a lot of ways for me is just I like to do it for the hunt, right? So if I'm, like, across the canyon and there's an elk there at 700 yards, I could shoot it. But, like, I don't necessarily, for me, get that same excitement of, like, getting into 200 yards because there's a lot that can go wrong there. So, right, you're just in a lot can go wrong at a 700 yard shot too. So he's like, well, where, where do I want the things to go wrong? Well, I'd rather have it go wrong with me stocking in and like that excitement of the stock in. And so I personally like to get as close as possible. Um, and I do the same with my bow because I can shoot my bow very far. There's certain situations where I've taken further shots, but I like to get in tight and that's the way that I enjoy the hunt. You know, I try not to like dictate 
my beliefs on other people for the most part. But I think that like, it's, it's good to regulate yourself and make sure that you have like whatever you're shooting has the killing power to effectively and efficiently kill whatever you're shooting at. So I think that that's very important, you know, and load choice and caliber selection and animal size are all factors in that. And how good you are with it was also important with it. That answers the question. Yeah, cool. We'll do one more. I think we had one more question right over here somewhere. You mentioned guiding. So my question as as someone that hasn't hired a guide, you know, what questions should we be asking when we're looking for a guide? Um, what should we expect from a guide, depending on obviously the type of hunt, you know, big game animal type? What should what should we expect? What we should be looking for? What should we be asking? Yeah, I mean, I think that like one thing I've run into like as a guide is we get a lot of clients or we used to get a lot of clients that have gone with other people and it was just like a terrible hunt. Right. And it's not that, um, there's just like a lot of really good ones and there's a lot of really bad ones. And I think like weeding through the ones that are going to meet the expectation for the type of hunt that you're going on, you know, there's, there's like this kind of thing where I think, in hunting, there's some outfits, like this is just from having worked in a lot of different places and encountered a lot of different guides and outfitters and other things, right? You can look on social media and you can see all the smiling success photos of big elk and big deer, right? And those are successful hunts and maybe they have a very high success rate. I just talked to a guy the other day and he was kind of like, told me the story of his hunt. He had a limited entry tag, went with like a fairly well-known guide. And it was like, He's like, it was the just most shitty hunt he'd ever been on, but he was successful. Right. So, and like, there's almost like this thing of like, well, success kind of covers up the like fact that like it was a terrible camp. It was like a horrible hunt. It was just like, they ended up killing something, but generally like, Oh, killing something made it okay. Like it didn't, they didn't have to try hard because their area has good genetics and like, it's just better odds that you're going to shoot something like that. And then there's other people that, like really value the hunt. And so it's like, well, what kind of hunt do you want to go on? And, and kind of ask the questions about what you're looking for specifically in and outside of success, right? Like I've hunted with guys and it's like, for me, I want to go with a guy that like values the hunt and not just puts me on a kill, right? It's like, okay, yeah, I, I'm going out there to be successful, but I also want to have a good hunt and, and that kind of thing. You know, I want to make sure that like, yeah, we're hunting in a way that I want to hunt. So it might not line up with everyone. There's guys that are, they specialize in one thing and maybe that's not what I want. So I, I would say like, ask the questions outside of just what's your success rate, right? Cause that doesn't tell a very good story. I would also ask questions of like talking to people that have been there that were both successful and unsuccessful because you learn a lot from the guys that weren't successful. Like, oh yeah, the guy tried his hardest. He hunted really hard. Like, that's all I ask for is like, I want somebody that's hunting as hard as they would if it was their own tag, right? And there's a lot of hunts where people don't do that. So that, those are the kind of things that I find important to ask. And then just whether you, you get along with the guy too, right? Like, if you're like, I got a good feeling about this guy. He seems like a pretty straight shooter. Or he's just like feeding me a crock. I think that that's, that's big deal as well. You know, it kind of is one of those things where really it's pretty much word of mouth. Like if you know somebody that's been on something and speaks highly of it, that's a place that you probably want to go. But there are new guys out there. And, you know, when I, it's funny because this, this event, I remember I exhibited here and I was, 
I like just started on my own and I was just like, I'm the type of person that I used to work for a lot of different outfitters, but I would never like their clients would call me and want to book a hunt with me now that I was on my own. And I was like, no, that's somebody else's client. Like, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to get my own clients. Like I just felt like that was dishonorable. And so whether it was or not, like they're like, I'm not going to hunt with that guy. I'm only going to hunt with you. And I'm like, well, I don't know, <laughs> whatever. I'm not, I'm just not going to book you. And, uh, and so I kind of struggled to, to get my own clientele. And I actually exhibited at this show here when it first started, it was before the 200 tags and the whole deal. You could like bowl down these aisleways when I was first exhibiting here. And I did it for about five years in different things. And at one point, like I was selling my fully guided elk hunts for, what was it like? Probably like 1700 bucks, right? And I was five day hunt and I had nearly 100% success. And like, I just like, people would walk past me and go book with a guy that was $5,000 and I knew was an absolute shit show <laughs> because I worked for him. And I'm like, okay, cool. Like the guy was drunk all the time, forgot people at the airport, 0% success rate, you know? And I'm like, okay, well, you know, like there are those out there where it's like new guys that are really willing to that do a good job. And honestly, like my hunt has not changed in since the time I was selling for 1700 bucks. And now they're like $9,000 and it's, the hunt hasn't changed at all. You know, it's just the value that, you know, we don't have availability. So it's supply and demand, right? But there are those guys out there that are really good and you just kind of got to feel it out and just kind of talk to them and, and people that they've hunted with and go from there. It's kind of a crapshoot in some ways, but there are things you can do to help yourself. I hope you guys enjoyed that podcast. You know, I'm going to do, I actually did two seminars. So we're going to, I'm going to air the next one on Monday. It's just going to be a bonus episode. So there were so many good questions. The next one had a lot to do with tag draws and that kind of stuff. We are in the, I would say just right in the thick of application season. February, March, April, that is the time where, literally the entire season happens for the most part. There's a couple later, but I'd say March and April or the month of March is has the most deadlines, has the heaviest weight of making sure you're applied and you've got a good plan in place because there's a lot of states that come up that you know you can obtain a tag, especially for elk and mule deer, a lot of great hunting to be had. So um, I think the next one will be good, especially if you're, if you're thinking about applying. There's a lot of application strategy, pre-scouting, all that good stuff. So that'll be our bonus episode. And then we're going to jump into a topic that I like next month. We're going to focus on spring bear hunting or spring hunts. I like to do them a little bit pre-season. So that way, if you're planning on a spot and stock bear hunt, you got a bear tag, you want to get out this spring, you're going to have some additional knowledge for this season right now before the season starts. So some stuff to look forward to next week as well. So I'm just going to say until next week, keep hunting, keep hunting, hunt up. I don't know. You know, the awkward goodbyes. It's all good. It's all good. We'll get through it. Catch you guys later.